I want to get in tonight, starting at Malachi, will be in chapter 2. But that introduction that we read in the first chapter of Isaiah just now is a fitting way to, to, for me to enter into the prophecy of Malachi uh, because remember last week when we started this book, we titled it, Enough is Enough of Compromise. You know, there was a, a gentleman by the name of William McDonald several years ago, many years ago actually, he uh, really opened up my, my understanding and my thinking more, is that, you know, things in the Old Testament, we must not confuse the promises to Israel, you know, versus the church, obviously, because the church was a mystery at that point, but we can, we can glean spiritual honey, if you will, from the Old Testament. God puts it in there in Jesus and, and, and said that, all these things are written for our example. You know, we can we can understand God. We're going to see in the third chapter of Malachi, if we make it there tonight, that He's a God that doesn't change. He is not a God that has went from cruelty to love, from indifference to now being you know involved. He's always been involved with His creation, and He's totally separate from it. He's always been in love with it, yet it's rebelled against them, you know. And it's the same today. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, yet the world goes on its rebellious way. God loves His people Israel, and Israel's going on its rebellious way. You know, it's, what's an amazing thing for me to think is that Israel yet will go through its roughest times. You know, you think of the Holocaust, you think of all these times, you know. But it's yet to go through its roughest times. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Yes, it's a short time, but it's very intense. Last week, I just want to go over a few things for that, those of us who weren't here, just to recap, and then we'll, we'll get going. Because Malachi is only four chapters, but boy, I'll tell you what, it's a, it is the, he's the last prophet, so to speak, uh, speaking to Israel before a period of, of about four centuries of silence. Both advents are, are he sees in the view, but he's like most prophets that they see, he's, it's like peaks, he sees the first advent of Christ and him coming in glory, and yet the church age is there. Jesus in Matthew 18 talked about the church, I will build my church. You know, It was a new thing, you read the word mystery, so much about the church in the New Testament, it's a mystery. We're dealing with his people Israel here, and Malachi, again, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. A century had passed, this is amazing to me, a century had passed since the Jews came to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. When they came back, a short revival, if you will, or a short uh, resurgence back to the Lord took place under Ezra and Nehemiah. Those make those, those books in the Old Testament so rich. Because these, these men came out, and God used them to lead this remnant back. They had two separate things. Nehemiah was, was strict for the wall and, and the security around Jerusalem, if you will. Ezra was dealing with the temple. We dealt with that in, in times past. But they were men that, that had a burning desire to see God's glory rekindled in his people. But then after the short thing, they lapsed back into religious formalism. You know, they, they, well, like Jesus said it best, they worshiped with their lips, but their heart was far from them. You know, they went right back again. And, and 
you, you start to see an understanding in the Word of God. How the, the, God has the apple of his eye and held in such promises and such esteem. You know, he told Joshua, every foot that you're, or every place that you sole your feet treads, I will give to you. You know, you see, if you take a, a good look at Joshua, for example, and you look at the book of Ephesians, okay? Joshua's told that, that every where the sole of his feet treads is going to be his. He's going to be victorious. But you read in the book, first uh, chapter of Ephesians that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Guess where all the warfare really started? When they went into the land. When, they, when Joshua started bringing them into the land. We see that when we start getting into, for the church, starts getting into their, the spiritual blessings and the heavenly places and start walking with Jesus Christ, we start, we enter into warfare as well. There has been a battle that's been going on all these years over Israel, over the people of Israel. It's not only a, a battle that's been going on now because we see it as we've been talking about it when we first start Wednesday nights, the battle between Jerusalem and Israel, what's going on? Why is it really fighting over there? It's a spiritual warfare that's, that's enacting all this to happen. And yet we see that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But behind this, behind this, there's a spiritual battle. And to understand it, we must go way back to the book of Genesis. Let me, let me, let me just tell you, show you something that's very interesting. And I don't know if you've thought about this. I don't want to get mixed up, but I want to lay the groundwork of the fact that when we start clearly seeing that God is in complete control, you know in Hebrews 11, where you have the, the role of faith, or whatever you want to call it, let me just point out something for you. We start on Hebrews chapter 11, and we find out that by faith we understand that the worlds are framed by the word of God. Okay, We're in Genesis chapter 1. So we get into, we get into the, the next verse, For by faith Abel offered to God more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And talking about Cain, we're in Genesis 4. So we go on down to uh, verse 5 about uh, Enoch, how he was not found because God had taken him and he found he was pleasing to God. We're in Genesis chapter 5. Then we go down to verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, and, and so on. So we're in Genesis 6. We go to chapter or verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength, conceived seed, and she bore a child. We're in Genesis 17. We go to the next verse, verse 12. By one man as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude. We're in Genesis 22. We go down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac. Isaac, excuse me. We're in Genesis 22 again. When I'm laying down here, is the Bible looks at faith through the eyes of the Scripture. You notice that now the biggest warfare we have in society are the tearing apart the book of Genesis. You know, especially the first three or four chapters. Well, we see that God's Hall of Fame, or God's God's Institute of Faith, what does he start with? Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 4, Genesis 5. It is laid out right here. There's a precedent here. And, this, and the only reason I point that out is because God is highly interested that people would take him at his, at his word. And that's interesting to me. 
And that's before we get into Rahab and, and Gideon and the prophets and, and all that. You know, God lays the groundwork and the prophets and the early work of his word is the groundwork. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but you know, we talked about this uh, religious formalism. You know, that uh, the first chapter of this Mal Malachi started out. You know, people were offering blemished sacrifices. That was prohibited by in Leviticus chapter 1 and elsewhere. Strictly prohibited. They ignored their tithes, which was supposed to come from the heart. You know, giving from the heart. You know, Paul expounds on that in the New Testament. The priesthood was corrupt and debased. Talked about Marriage, the infidelity in marriage is rampant. Divorce was very common. Intermarriage was accepted. And that's just the first chapter. Is God interested in moral living? Absolutely. But more than that, moral living and upright living in is a, an outward sign of what's going on inwardly. You know, it's very easy to be formal. It's very easy to go somewhere on the outside and go to church or somewhere else and people think, wow, that guy's spiritual and does all the great things. But inside you corrupt. What do you do at home? What do you do when nobody's watching? God's watching all the time, you know? And he's saying that this is coming to a head. And, and But in all the midst of that, he promises a redeemer. And what we're going to see is, as we get along a little bit later on tonight is that God is going to cleanse Israel. Okay? He's not only going to bring him when he comes back to the rod of judgment, but he's going to cleanse them. And that's what he does with you and I. We have been cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We've been made anew. You know, we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And this is coming. If we are a wild olive branch, we are grafted into the natural tree, how much more will the natural branches, Paul says in Romans 11, be grafted back into the natural olive tree? Things are starting to make sense. He says in chapter 2, And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your descendants and spread refuge. We'll get into these. This is amazing. Again, I will rebuke your descendants, verse 3. Spread refuge on your faces and refuse the refuse of your solemn feasts. And one will take you away with it. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, verse 4, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me. And was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and turned many away from iniquity. He describes in verse 7, listen to this, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, verse 9, I have also made you contemptible and base before all people, because you have not kept my ways, 
but have shown partiality in the law. You know, I want to be some in the first couple of verses here tonight, be flipping back and forth. I just want you to see where these things he's talking about are, are linked to the, the cradle of the word, if you will. If you don't want to turn there, that's fine. Keep a mental note or write them down. Or just know that the Lord is, again, as we've talked about, the, his integrity is, is wrapped up in his word. You know, and he is the, and you're going to see when we see these things, when we finally get to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I am the Lord, I don't change. I don't understand where, you know, basically my paraphrase is saying, where do you think I would change? Where do you think I would accept what's corruptible? Where do you think I would accept what that it might be a lot good and a little bad or whatever? I am pure, I'm holy, I'm the Lord, you're God. And we see today that, that people are expecting God to change. You know, they're saying something God has not said. They're leading people astray. They're going away from the fact that God is a solid rock. He doesn't change. You know, how much more can we, does God have to say, I do not change. You listen to me, you obey me, you walk with me, you love me, you fear me, it's going to go well with you. Now that's not the law. That is God. God is not going to allow somebody that claims to be under his name, that claims to be living under the umbrella of his grace, to go in a way constantly that's going to be in disgrace to his name. He's just not going to do it. Is that law? Absolutely not. God forgave you and I as Christians all the guilt and the penalty of law could ever say with us because we've turned to Christ. But by turning to Christ... We receive newness of life and we walk in the way of the Lord because we fear Him and we bring glory to His name. And we think, well, wait a minute, what does that have to do with what we're talking about now? Well, you know, let's get back into the first part of chapter 2. He's talking about the priests. The priests are corrupt and priests are this and priests are that. Read the first three chapters of Revelation, how when Jesus says the angels to the churches, I have something to say to you. You know all that we went through this the other day about just the church at Ephesus alone. You have all the correct doctrine. You, can, you know when falsity is around. You've labored for my name. You don't get weary and all this, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. You better repent and do the things you did at first, or else I will come and remove your lampstand. Is that law? No. It's not law. It's grace. Getting back into chapter 2, verse 1, And now, O priest, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already, because you do not take it to heart. Now, if you want to keep the finger there, you want to go back to Deuteronomy 28, like I said, please feel free to just listen. You know, the reason why I say that a lot of times is there's a, there's a reason. I, I remember when, way back when, when we used to teach new technicians that would come on and we'd teach them the route. And some of them could learn better by sitting there and watching where they were going. And others would learn better by sitting, by getting behind the wheel and actually driving it. 
So whatever is comfortable for you, I don't want it to people worry about where things are so much that they get the, the flow of the thought marred. So, so he's saying, again, if you will not hear, if you're not going to take it to heart, this commandment of the priest, you know, who is the most important person in the, the, the theoretic uh, dealings or the kingdom dealings of the people in Israel? It wasn't the king, it was the priest. The priest is what delivered the word of God to the people and was a medium between uh, God and the people. He was a representative, if you will. So this commandment, God's saying, I have this commandment to you. Listen to me. And if you're not going to take it to heart, you are going to pay with a curse. In Deuteronomy 28, I'll just do uh, verses uh, 3 to 14 real quick. But he's saying, he says, all the blessings of verse 2 shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 3, blessed you shall be in the city and blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed you shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground, the increase of your herds and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 6, blessed shall be you when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated. Verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing on you in the storehouse, in which all you set your hand to do, he will bless you in everything. Verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a holy people. Verse 10, listen to this, all the peoples of the earth shall see you, who are called by my name, the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Josh experienced that. Verse 11, the Lord will grant you plenty in your goods and the fruit of your body and increase your livestock, produce your ground. Are you getting the picture here? The Lord will bless beyond imagination. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, we'll get into that later. But God said, this is what I will do to the one who fears me, the one who walks with me, the one who, who knows that I am the Lord God. I have no rivals. You know, he says repeatedly through the prophet Isaiah, who will you liken me? Who is like me? There is nothing like me. But yet, we have all the blessings and the blessings and the blessings. Look at verse 15 if you're there. Let's just go down just a little ways. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to serve, continue all the commandments and the statutes which I command you today. All these curses will come upon you and overtake you. For example, verse 16. Cursed you shall be in the city, and cursed you shall be in the country. Just the opposite way he says, blessed you shall be, back in verse 3, and blessed in the country. Verse 17, curse shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Curse shall be the fruit of your body. Curse shall be when you come in and when you go out. Um, you're going to be a plague to the people that you come upon, you know, come upon, and so on and so forth. So we understand God has a precedent set here. Now, some people say, well, okay, I understand what you're saying here, but but that's not that's not the New Testament doctrine. That's right, that's not the New Testament doctrine. The New Testament doctrine is that a Redeemer has come. And a Redeemer has taken punishment for sin, so it's not any longer my sense of obedience that makes my place with God. My standing with God is one who came and lived a perfect life of obedience for me, who feared the Lord God and kept every commandment and, and walked in His ways for me. He's my representative. And yet He took my punishment. And that's why the Redeemer in Israel is such a part of the prophecies of Israel. God is going to exalt them who came through 
Israel, the Redeemer. Where did the scriptures come through? Through Israel, the Redeemer. God is not done with Israel. Israel's going to be saved through the same saved by the same way when they recognize the Messiah. You know? I'm going to tell you these priests, you don't fear me. This is what's going to happen. Look at verse 3. Behold, I rebuke your descendants and spread refuse on your faces. This is literally excrement. In Exodus 29.14, it says this was to be burned outside the camp. Okay, it's an unclean thing. What they were doing before the Lord as priests were an unclean thing. They were walking before Him as an unclean thing. They were doing abominable things. And God says, okay, let me tell you something. I will spread excrement on your faces. He said this in debasing terms. God shows their debased behavior by the basic terms that He uses. See, God wants total commitment from His ministers. He says through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, we've talked about this a lot. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. He wants total commitment from those who have the privilege, we all have the privilege, of, of speaking His word, of handling His word. He says in verse 4, Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my command, excuse me, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. Let's just look real quick. Well, back to Deuteronomy 33, if, if you're already there. You know, God is gonna is is so good because He allows us to see His Word and we allows us to see that He is not a respecter of persons, yet whom he chooses, or excuse me, who he chooses, he disciplines. Whom he loves, he disciplines. So, looking at this, look at Deuteronomy 33 real quick, 8 and 9. He says, And of Levi, he said, Let your Tullam and your Urim, those were the, those were the, the on the, uh, the, the high priests wore those. You've seen their, their plates that have the color of different stones and everything on them. With your Holy One, when you tested at, at Massa, with whom you are contended at the waters of Merib, who says to his father and mother, I have seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgment, Israel your law, and they shall put incense before you and hold burnt offering of the sacrifice on your altar. The reason why I bring this up is because God... At one time, when Levi was, was pure, they kept reverence with God. You know, you remember Phoenix, the, the one back in that called down the curse when uh, back in the day he was a part of that Levite priesthood? And he'll use that through some of the prophets as saying, when, when it was pure, when the Levi uh, line of my law was pure, it was faithful, it kept its, its fidelity, if you will. And I blessed it. My covenant back in, in chapter 2, verse 5, was with them. As one of life and peace, verse 5. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me. So we start to see that the commandments and that the covenants that God gave was that people would fear him out of a willing heart. 
Can't you see what's going on today? God wants to be believed. God wants to be worshipped out of a pure and willing heart. You know, I know Christians, and so do you, that have lived for many years that still don't understand that God saved them, God washed them from their sins and His own blood, God gave them a new nature, God made them a new creation so that they might fear Him, that we might walk in the ways. God did not want you to be a robot. He didn't want us just to, you know, uh, go through a series of motions because we're saved and someday I'll get there, you know. No, God has changed us and cleansed us that we would fear Him, that we would walk before Him, that we would be clean vessels of the Lord, you know. That we would, Paul makes this abundantly clear when he says, Come out from among them, be ye separate, says the Lord, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me. God has not changed. Now, I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that at all. My shift here is on the Lord God. Not on our duties, not on our performances, but on Him. Because we can see that His people, Israel, have failed time and time and time again. We have been blessed. We have the Messiah. We've been forgiven. We are cleansed. And now we have the power to live but we also have the freedom to rebel. It is ouch. I don't know if, they, if you were saying ouch, but it is. You know, it, it really is. And I think that when we get to see, when we stand before the Lord, we're going to realize that these, these strong messages that God is saying to the prophets, um, He meant business. He meant business. I'm going to keep going. I had a few more references, but I'm, I'm going to keep going here. Look at verse 6. The law of truth was in his mouth, and injustice was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and turned many from iniquity. You know, today, life and peace are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Israel is yet to receive its greatest exaltation. They will, they will see this. And I think part of what Zechariah is talking about in Zechariah 12, when he's coming back and he pours out his spirit on, on the inhabitants of, of David, they are going to realize that their true peace, their true identity, their true, their true deliverance, and when I say true identity, their true identity is the one that they pierced so long ago. And they will be saved the same way that we say the Messiah was first sent to the lost sheep of Israel. First, we think that he was sent to us first. <laughs> We're the recipients of it. You see why Romans chapter 11 is so important? So important. These people that teach replacement theology, I don't know. Help me out here if you can. I don't know what they do with that 11th chapter or, or three quarters of, of the Word of God. Because it is clearly seen that there is a, a holy stump, if you will. And Israel, because of disobedience, was kind of uh, set apart from that holy stump for a while. And we, as recipients of mercy, Gentiles, we are grafted in to that promise, that covenant, those blessings. And for a while, that has happened to make his people jealous, the Bible says. 
But when the fullness comes of the Gentiles come in and God turns his, his attention to his people and he brings them through his rod of judgment and cleanses them, guess what's going to happen? He is going to take these natural branches and graft them right back into their natural roots, their natural stump. And how glorious that's going to be. Paul says it this way, Oh, the depths of the riches of the glories of God. Who can, who, who can understand? I mean, it's glorious. And this is what is happening. And it's all dealing with remnants. You know, as you see that, that two-thirds of the nation of Israel in the tribulation period are going to perish. A third are going to be, are going to be received. They're going to be the believing. Paul calls them all of Israel. They will be judged. They will be cleansed. And they will be a beautiment and a wonderment to the world. I want to focus on tonight the obedience that God yearns for. The obedience that we have. You know, some people don't want to hear that. We have, just in my personal ministry over the last 20 years, it, we are amazed. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this, preparing these messages, of how many people do not want to hear a message like that. They don't want to be called on their lack of obedience. They don't want to be called on their sin. They don't want to be called on a lethargic attitude. Their complacency, their being asleep in the light, whatever you want to call it. People get very, very nervous about that because they know in their heart, especially if they are a Christian, that that's what God desires. That we would walk circumspectly. Glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse 7, the lips of the priest should keep knowledge. They should. The people should seek the law from his mouth. It was important. He is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Do you see that? <laughs> if you got a pen, underline some of these words. I do. The priest should keep knowledge. The second thing in that verse 7, the people should seek the law from his mouth. They should be able to seek it, knowing that they could understand and get the word of God, because these men were... Se Paul says this, I have separated myself under the gospel of God. That's it. <laughs> I don't have any other, any other uh, motive in life. I've been called to be an apostle. I am not anybody else's but my Lord's bondservant now. I've been separated unto the gospel of God. You know, the three things, again, in this verse 7, that we see that the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, the people should seek that from his mouth, and more importantly, if you will, he is a messenger of the Lord. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, what are we? He who knew no sin took our sin, that we might become the righteous of God in him. We are ambassadors. What do we have a message from God? Reconciliation. What is the message today in the church today? It's not reconciliation. It's how God can benefit your life. It's, how, it's what He can do for you. And I use this example because it is right before me, and, and, and I must use examples in, in life at this time in the 21st century that we have. It, the... These false teachers, these false 
prophets, if you will, are saying, you can have your best life now. And it's infiltrating the church. God wants a priest, God wants a representative to know knowledge. Paul is on his way out. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, only by doing this is a teacher of the word of God safeguarding himself from heretical teaching. But more importantly, he's doing that because he fears the Lord. He fears the word. The word of God is everything. It's God's integrity. And God trusts that to us. How are we doing? How are we doing? Are we growing in knowledge? We just finished Second Peter last Sunday. His last words were to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what God desires, is that we grow up into Him. You know, we have all kinds of things about a, a priest should keep knowledge. The people should be able to seek from Him the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Not philosophy, you know, not stories, not new revelations, you know. But they should seek the Word of God and the Word of God alone. Because that's what God does. You know, you look at strong churches today, strong movements of God. What are we lacking in? We're lacking in good teaching. We're lacking in faithful men that are willing to go above and beyond to be accused of um, narrow-mindedness, accused of being old-fashioned, accused of, of, of living your life out of a book and so forth, but they're willing to stand on the Word of God and the Word of God alone because the few people that come to Him, they're hungry souls, and God loves these people. He wants His sheep fed correctly. And what are these people coming for? These people desperately want to touch from God. These people desperately want to know what God is about and who He is, and they're getting fed lies. And that's what He's talking about here. They're not faithful shepherds anymore. Ezekiel talks a lot about that. Jeremiah talks a lot about that. The Lord Jesus talks a lot about that. He should be a messenger. So again, in verse 7, I, don't, I want to hit this point home. That a, a priest or, or, or anybody that's a representative, you know, look at pastors or look at anybody in authority now. They should have knowledge, number one. The people should be able to seek the word of God through them, knowing that they will get fed. Do you get fed? If you don't get fed, then, then we're wasting our time. They should, they should get fed. They should be able to seek the law of the Lord. You read the 8th chapter of Nehemiah, speaking of Nehemiah. And these men stood up. Ezra and the scribes stood up. And from early light till noon, these people in reverence stood on their feet and they heard the word of God. And they heard the word of God and they wept. 
And they wanted more. All they could understand, they didn't send the kids off somewhere else. All they could understand words stood before them and they heard the pure word of God, the law. And number three, he needs to realize he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Wow. I do not want to stand before the Lord and him ask me, what did you do with my word? What did you do with, 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 with the people that were under your care and under you know, the, the, the feeding of the word? And it's just not about pastors and it is about people of integrity, people that, that should have the word of God in their mouth. They should have the word of God in their heart. They should have made the decision years ago. Decision in my house has been made as me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. There is no turning back. The decision's been made. But you have departed, verse 8, from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Remember? Back when? That's why we went, went back and forth. Because when it was pure, you know, the covenant that was given to Levi, the string of, of uh, a priest, it was pure. They, were, they feared God. You know, there's so many people today that I believe that just don't have the fear of God. And it shows. They don't, they don't have the time for God. They don't seem to have the energy for God. You know, have you ever wondered why some people seem to have energy for God and some people don't? It's not because God made some people with energy and some people don't. People have energy for God because they fear Him. He is their life. They draw all resources from Him. They draw all strength from Him. Listen to this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. He is, he was, they were zealous. And this is what we're talking about here. And, and, and the last prophet of, of the God's last prophetic voice of, of the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, so to speak, he is crying out. And you know, what's a faithful uh, prophecy in this book as well is the coming is the forerunner, John the Baptist. The last of the prophets, if you will, coming on the scene. Remember? We can go into Luke and see how Elizabeth was uh, was with with John, the child, and how the how the babe leapt in her when when Mary, who was who was carrying Jesus at the time, uh, how he grew up out in the wilderness, how he was a forerunner, and he was and people were mistaken. They thought, well, wait, is this the Christ? Is this a prophet? They should have known. He says, no, I'm one crying in the wilderness. Make ye way the straightness of the Lord. You know, he's preparing his way. Because it is Christ or judgment. 
These people, let alone to themselves, would have would have destroyed themselves because God is a God of judgment. And yet through them came not only the Messiah, but through them will be the administration of a wonderful kingdom coming where the law is going to be laid down. Zealous for the Lord is going to be, the law and everything else is going to be exact. But they've departed. They've caused many to stumble in the law. Can you imagine that? Jesus said, it would be better for a millstone to be hung around their neck and drowned in the depths of the sea than to have these little ones stumble. It is, it is an offense. You know why men don't care? Men have no fear of God. You know, you look at, uh, there's so many passages. You know, there's that, of course, there's that one that James 1. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. You know, we have Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they will watch out for your souls of those who must give an account. Do we really fear God? Turn on your Christian radio. There's a few, there's, there's some good people out there. But you know what? Turn on some places and, uh, and see what you see. We've been blessed in this, in this country to have some good stations and some good teaching. But I'll tell you what, all it takes, I challenge you, you if, this, if these messages are a challenge to you, and you think, well, you're just getting too hard and maybe reading so much out of something, do some research. Check on some of these ministries, some of these mega ministries. Check on what they teach. Check on what's coming down to these denominations that are apostate. Check on some of these seminaries that used to flourish, leading with Princeton, and go down from there. Do some research. Don't just take my word for it. I don't like speaking like this sometimes. I don't like speaking against sin sometimes because it's hard. But you know what? I must speak on what I feel that the Scriptures teach. And God is sick of people not fearing Him and yet giving Him lip service while their heart is far from Him. We want a strong church and we want to glean from that so when Christ comes back, we are waiting for Him expectantly. When we see Him, and by the way, an imminent expectation of the Lord does not mean soon. It means that nothing else has to happen until he comes back, okay? We are not ignorant of the fact that let's put a flower in our house, sell everything that we have, and because the Lord's coming back now. That is not what we're called to do. What we are called to do is purify our lives before Jesus. Get rid of all unknown, all known sin. Keep short accounts with God. Watch your life closely. You ministers and you pastors that might be listening to this, look at verse 7, 8, and 9. You should be able to have knowledge. People should be able to come to you and seek that have questions that want to know the Lord. And you should be able to say, you come with me. What did Jesus say? Make disciples of all nations. Teaching them all things that I have taught you. Baptizing them. They are given into our care. What are we doing? Are we so selfish in our church life and in our, in our smug Christianity that we are not watching our life closely? 
that we are not caring for the young ones, that we are not making sure that we know as much as we possibly can about the Word of God. Well, gee, i got such a tight schedule, I can't get in the Word, really. I can tell you this one thing, God will never give you such a tight schedule that you cannot let Him in. That's first parameters, ever. These people should have known this. Verse 9, Therefore I have also made you contemptible and base before all people, because you have not kept my ways and have shown partiality in the law. You know, this corruption, versus these first nine verses that we read, is all too prevalent among pastors and teachers of this age. Thus, they will be held in strict accountability. My, my desire through the teaching that we have here, through the fellowship that we have here, through the men that we have here. By the way, we have some wonderful men here. <laughs> we are really blessed. I don't know. Some people, you know, I had a brother-in-law one time. He, you know, had been in the Lord 15 years or whatever. And he only went to one church, you know, and that's all he's ever known. That's all he's ever seen. I've been fortunate to be involved uh, in several different churches and, and be in many other ones and go around and, and do some some speaking in some of those, I've seen different places. I've seen a lot, not as much as some of you probably have, but enough. We are blessed here. We really are. For as small as we are to have the caliber of men that we have. And I'm not excluding you women. We want to be strong. We don't want these words to be said to us. You know... You read in the uh, second and third chapters of Revelation and what the Lord Jesus had to say in, to his churches. He loved them. And it was rebuking them. For the Lord, those that the Lord loves, he chastens. You know? He cares about our life and how we live. And he, he, was, he was looking at these priests and, these, and they were just, they were defaming his law. They were twisting it. But look at the last part of verse 9. It's shown partiality in the law. Partiality in the law. Are we showing partiality in the Word of God? Are we taking some of it to heart and some of it not, not so much? Are we allowing some of it, the easier passages, to, to you know, mold our life? I, li- I kind of like those, but the, the harder ones I kind of stay away from, you know? Paul didn't think so said to be diligent, again, to, pre- to present yourself approved to God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul didn't think that. Paul didn't think that when he told Timothy as he's leaving in, in the second uh, letter as he, of his last inspired writing. He said, Timothy, watch your life closely. Not only your doctrine, but your life. It matters to God. You know what? I'll tell you what. We found in here a principle that if this is going to happen, and if you're going to be contemptible, and if you're going to twist my law, and if you're not going to have the fear of me, and if you're not going to walk before me and so people can come to you and get knowledge and they can seek the law from your mouth, and that you can show them the way to me, I am going to take your lampstand out of there. I am going to destroy you. I have seen that done. We have, we have had a pastor in this, in this area in the last several years. That, were, that was just desecrating what God has given him. 
and taking grace and, and putting it loose and, and walking around. And God drove that ministry, or I should say allowed that ministry to go right into the ground. Contempt came from it. Hurt families came from it. People came from it. I know of a guy personally that had gone there for a long time and believed in that and sought from his mouth the word of God. And to this day, that was over six, almost seven, eight years ago, to this day, that man will not step foot in a church. He's indignant. He's had it. He's done. It's contemptible. Israel had lost its mission. Its mission was to proclaim to the world and the nations around the blessedness of serving the one true God. They had lost that. They had desecrated that. And God is angry. You know, if... Uh, If we knew that, that Jesus wasn't coming back for a thousand years, okay, there's a good test. And I'll, I'll close with this. If we knew he wasn't coming back for a thousand years, definitely not in our lifetime. This is what is going to happen in our lifetime. We know that the world is getting worse, but we will live until we die somehow. Maybe live to be 85, 95, whatever, or, or whatnot. Would it change the way that we live now? Or would we get a, a form of complacency? You know, maybe the Lord will come back and, and maybe he will come back for another 50 years. Okay? I don't I personally don't see that, but but on the other side of the coin, if you took to heart because you fear the Lord your God and he says to watch, to wait for a son from heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven for we eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I could go on for another 20 minutes with solid things from the Word of God to watch, to be expected, to do this. Does that, should that change your life? Yes. If I knew that Christ was coming back Friday afternoon at 3, would that change the way that I live? I'm only human, I'm sure it would. But it shouldn't change my heart's attitude. It should definitely not change the fear that I have for the Lord. These had lost it. They had lost their mission. They had lost their authority. They had lost their privileges. They had lost everything. And God was saying, look, I'm not, I'm not going to stand for this being so complacent. And yet you offer everything to me. You come and you weep and you cry and you, and you say, oh, I, you know, God is so good and I can't believe he saved me. And the next week they go out and get caught a prostitute. Or, oh, God is so good, and you guys are so wonderful, and they gain in all the money they can, and the next thing you know, they're going off with the church secretary. Yeah. This is what was happening here. Wait until we haven't even gotten to the point of, of the infidelity of marriage and how God hates divorce and why it happens. Then we'll get into the third chapter about God being the one who is a refiner. Oh, that's a great. I can't wait till we get into chapter 3, verse 3, and we go over Zechariah chapter 13. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is the one that sits and refines. The Messiah is the one that refines like a, like a launder's soap. And then we get into chapter 13 of Zechariah going back. Remember, God is going to refine them, bring them in the rod of cleansing and 
It is absolutely wonderful. The coming Messiah. Wow. Well, let me tell you something in closing. The Messiah has come for us. <laughs> We're in Him. You know? And don't you think that we should glean from what disgusts God and what grieves Him? Because Paul says two things about the Holy Spirit in our life. Three, actually. And I will close with these. Number one, our privilege and our duty is to be filled with the Spirit. Number two, because we're fallible beings inside of heaven, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And number three, because of that being fallible, we can quench the Holy Spirit. To quench the Holy Spirit is to not allow Him to do His work and what He desires to do in and through your life. Grieving the Spirit is allowing sin and indifference to come into your life. Why would we do that when we have the privilege and the duty to be filled with the Spirit, to bring honor and glory to Christ, to be living vessels that no matter who you see throughout the day, you are going to bear some resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this was, was an encouragement to you. I don't want to grieve the Lord. Because like we said a little while ago, sooner, much, much sooner than later, for all of us, we're going to see him. Much sooner than later. <laughs> you know, we're not five years old anymore. We're not ten years old. We're not even twenty, okay? I don't think there's anybody here that's not past fifty. We're going to see the Lord even if we live, well, okay. <laughs> Even if we live out our natural days, for most of us, we will see the Lord sooner than later. Think about these things. God loves you, and He desires the best for you. And you know the best for you? Get rid of the rivals and serve Him in simplicity and truth and purity. That's the best for you. Mike, you want to pray for us? Father, please multiply to us grace and peace in the knowledge of you and of Jesus. Mm. Help us to heed the examples of these uh, priests, Lord, uh, where they fell short, where they didn't reverence you. Uh, help us not to be like that, Lord. But as we take in knowledge of you and your word, help it to purify our walks and then our actions. So, thank you for the abundance and availability of the truth of your Lavished upon us the grace of Christ. We grow in grace, but we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, Peter's first epistle emphasizes grace eight times. In his second epistle, he emphasizes knowledge six times. This is important. We grow in grace. We're not going to grow up someday to salvation. We grow in salvation. We are saved. We're growing in our salvation. We're growing in, our, in the position that has already been laid for us. So like how Lindsay wrote in that book, there is a new world coming. You know, 
And you and I have all the the blessings and the privileges of knowing that whatever God is doing, we will be right there with Him. You know, from chapter 19 in Revelation, verse 11, all the way through, we are going to be there with Christ. I believe that the Bible is summarized by this great understanding in chapter 4 of Revelation that we will, we will go up with Him. But also in, in Revelation 19 says, To the seer John of the Revelation, that door with great door was open. What does he see? See, when the first door was open, he saw himself being caught up to receive revelations from, from the Lord himself. The things that were, the things that are, and the things that will come to pass. So in Revelation 19, another door is open that we see, we see heaven. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ and all his glory coming back. And we are with him. And we are with him and we see him as a lion now, the tribe of Judah coming back and settling this sin, evil issue once and for all. Of taking his promises. We have, we have so, just in this study alone on Wednesdays and so forth, saw all the promises of God from hundreds and hundreds of years back. We're going to see the consummation of God's promise back in Deuteronomy. I chose you and I love you, not because you're many, but because you're the smallest clan of the people. I chose my love on you. We're going to see that consummated. We're going to see our Lord doing that when he gathers his people and rescues them in the Armageddon and destroys the evilness of the world and sets up the kingdom that is so prominent in the word of God. We're going to be there with him, co-reigning with him, dwelling with him. Then through the millennium, we're going to see how Christ, not the utopia that the world's ever seen, but how Christ can rule righteously and, and the glories that follow. We're going to see the, the evilness of Satan himself being cast in the lake of fire. We're going to watch the great white throne judgment of all the great and the small of the earth being dead in sin, being judged for their sins and the awesomeness of that. We are going to watch the heaven and earth flee away at his presence as wonderful glory. And then we as a church are privileged to watch our Lord create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Folks, if that doesn't excite you, we're, we're in the wrong place. You know, this is our future. This is what the Word of God says. Amen. And there are those out there today that, that need to be saved. They need to realize that they're lost and sinful and undone. And if they prolong this area to the death of the body, they're in a predicament they cannot get out of. They're going to a place called Hades. They are in torment and they are awaiting a fearful day of judgment. And when that day comes, they will go into a place called outer darkness, a weeping and gnashing of teeth where the fire is not quenched and the worm is a die. And we could go on and on. These people need to be saved. How do I get saved? You realize that you're lost and done and that you're a sinner. You sin against God. You have no hope. God's righteous and you're not. But Jesus Christ says, He who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. He died on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because God is not going to forsake Jeff forever. So Christ took my punishment on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead. You come to Christ and you, you turn from your sin. And you turn to the Savior who bore the punishment for your sin. And you ask him today, God, I believe you. I'm undone. I'm holy. 
You know, like the thief on the cross says, says, you know, don't yell, he's done nothing wrong. I'm a sinner. I've done everything wrong. I deserve judgment. And Christ took my judgment on the cross and God raised him from the dead. And by believing him, I have life in his name. I have forgiveness of sins. And I will not come under condemnation or judgment because Christ has took my judgment. He said, I passed from death into life. That's how we become a Christian. That's how we avoid the judgment of God because judgment is coming. That's what we have to look forward to. The Bible. You can't destroy it. You can't get rid of it. And God said it's by His Word and His Word alone that gives the right understanding of who we are. And we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. I can't do good works to get to heaven. I can't do good enough deeds so that I'll wait my bad deeds. I'm already dead in sin. I've already sinned. I've already desecrated a holy God. I've already spit in his face. I've already gone days and days and days and days and some of you years and years and years without even thinking about God, going your own way, doing your own thing. You're a created being, whether you want to admit it or not. By that nature, you're going to be accountable to your creator. Do you want to be accountable to sin in front of a holy God? Or do you want to be... Do you want to come to the Savior now who's judged and was judged for your sin and he will clothe you with with his skins of forgiveness, his robe of righteousness, his standing. So whether you die now or 10 years from now, you go immediately in the presence of your Savior who loved you and died for you. Wow. Amen. Father, I thank you for the, the word this morning. I thank you for your love and your mercy. And we don't have to be fearful of death. We can be brand new, new creatures in Christ. And Lord, I thank you for these epistles that we've gone through for the last couple of months. I pray that we would have the fervency of, of seriousness, of looking at, at where this world is going. Father, I pray that we wouldn't take that one talent and hide it away and, and say, well, I'm saved, that's good enough. <laughs> Whew. But that we would take it and we would share it. We would take Christ, whether by word, hopefully by word and conduct. But he who wins souls is wise. And as Jim Elliott says, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot afford to lose. I thank you for your word this morning, Father. I ask that you would just bless us with yourself today in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> From going through judgment, that he's not willing that any should perish in judgment, that all should come to repentance. So these people are saying, and again, and to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil should come upon you. Look at verse 18. For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? 
Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. Look at verse 21 if you're there. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Verse 23, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Verse 24, Who can anyone hide himself in secret places? So I shall not see him, says the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? You know, deception. Again, there's going to come such a deception that this world is going to know and going to see that everything will be, quote, unquote, connotated as one world, one uniting, and Christian will be the deceptive word. You know, I think that if we look at uh, so many things in the book of Revelation and so many things about the end-time prophecies about this Antichrist or this man of lawlessness, this deceivable one, this one that causes desolation, why, and why at the root of it does he cause desolation? Because he wants to be worshipped as God. When in, in Revelation 5, I believe it is, when John was up there and, they, and the scroll was handed down from the Father and nobody was able to open it, and they all wept, but he says, be of good cheer. The lamb has prevailed. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to open the, scroll, the scrolls and loose the book. And what does he do? He opens it up. And what do we have in the first scroll? A, a conqueror riding on a white horse, but it's not the white horse. The white horse isn't until the 19th chapter of Revelation. He goes out to conquer and, and, and to conquer. Destructiveness, deception is everywhere. You know, I've come to realize that that in, in my heart of hearts, I'd rather have a church that's small in number and, and strong in, in Jesus Christ and strong in the Word of God and able to stand these days that are coming. Because they are coming. And we can start seeing little hints of, of the fact that when the church is removed, there's a strong delusion that's going to pervade this world, that they will believe the lie. The lie is that Jesus Christ paid for the sins of the world, and there's no hope of eternal life and forgiveness of sins apart from Him. He's the truth. You know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to follow by me. And Pilate said an amazing thing when he was standing up to judge what is truth? Because Jesus said, all that are on the truth stand with me on the side of truth. And Pilate says, well, what is truth? Truth is something that, that the world has been grappling with forever, and that's why deception is so rampant, spiritual truth. You know, I think all of us right off the, the top of, of before I, I get into the heart of this uh, we need to be thankful for those that have, in our past, that have been uh, responsible for 
bringing the Word of God, for faithfully bringing the Word of God, for loving the Word of God, for nourishing us, for correcting us when we've gone astray, for being there and wanting and desiring our spiritual growth. You know, again, we, we can't go very far in this. I want to just recap. False teachers, destructive heresies. And what Jesus said in Matthew 24, take heed, which means this is prominence. Understand, listen, take recognition. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am Christ. This is a very key understanding. Christ means the anointed one. Many will come and say, I have the word of God. Many will come and say, look at all the men, quote unquote, God men that came from the East and the New Age movement, all these things. You know, it just took one man, Maharishi Mashiogi, to come and inform the Beatles and look at, look at the generation that they influenced. Many people will come in my name and say, I am Christ. Some are bold like David Koresh and other people that say that, yeah, I am Jesus. Louis Farragon, one of the latest ones, uh, and so forth. But the deception comes in when they say, I'm the anointed one. I have a, min, a message of God. And your way is narrow-minded. Your way says that there's only one way. That's too narrow-minded for this sophisticated society. After all, we are individuals. This is the 21st century. We have a lot to offer, but we don't have a lot to offer God. Let's go back to the scripture. And if anybody had a reason to boast before God, Abraham should have. But the Bible says not before God. He can boast before men, but not before God. So, destructiveness. John in his second letter describes the deceivableness of these people. For many deceivers have gone out in the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, not only proving his, his pre-existence, but the only one that is the hope of mankind. Without Christ, it's judgment. Without Christ, it's perishing. And God said, that is it. And these deceivers will come and will say, wait a minute. You know, okay, Jesus, we can't deny he was a man. But you know what? There's more than one way. You know, there's a lot of religions out there that say there's more than one way. There's some religions that say there's, there's more than one way that come to your door every week or every other week. You know, they're all around us. But yet, because they don't have the, maybe the, the language that we read all the time, we think, well, wait, this is old. This is talking about something else. No, folks, it's here now. I want to re I want to re say a quote from from Tim LaHaye that I think is just excellent on this matter, and then we'll go on. He says many will follow false teachers, especially in the last days. These cults, liberal churches, and occult movements, which are rapidly spreading all over our land, are speaking in the name of Jesus or of the Christ but never of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they will never talk about God as being the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's insightful. We need to thank God that he's raised up people like that. You see, doesn't that add validity to Ephesians 4? 
where he gave some as apostles, some as evangelists, some as prophets, some as teachers, some as pastors, for the equipping of the saints, so that we would not be moved to and fro with various winds of doctrine. How dare these people say that these are old documents, we need something new. You know, where does the Bible say that experience runs the day? Where does the Bible say that, that we, we live off experiences from one high peak to the other? It never does. Jesus dwells down in the valley of those that love him. That promise to bring them through the valley of death. That promise to lead them in their ways of understanding. That promise to know exactly when to let them lie down in green pastures and exactly when to go up in the, in the path of righteousness for his namesake. He is the good shepherd that has never left. And these false teachers are denying that very existence that Jesus came to give to us. He says in verse 3, again, by covetousness. You know what covetousness is? It is gleaning something that is not yours. Truth does not belong to false shepherds. Truth do not belong to false prophets. Truth does not belong to false teachers. Truth does not belong to lying and saying of, of lying wonders and signs. Because they're going to exploit you with deceptive words. Listen, I don't want people lying to my kids. I don't want people lying to my wife. I don't want people lying to you. I don't want people lying to me. But it says, with not only covetousness, these people with greed are going to take something that's not their own. Listen, the truth belongs to those that will cherish the truth. Belongs to those that will, that will guard at all costs. Paul says repeatedly, guard what the Holy Spirit has entrusted to you. Paul says in 1 Timothy that I've been entrusted with the gospel of Christ. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is going to trust a faithful men. That's why we're told to teach faithful men that will teach also. But it does not belong to falsity. They're going to exploit you with deceptive words. And God, their judgment has not been idle. Their destruction does not lumber. lumber. It's, it's been from way back. God has spoken about these people. And it all started in the garden. It actually started before that. But man's deception started in the garden. And that is one of the reasons why that part of the scripture is so much laughed at and regarded as myth. Because you take out that discord in the garden and you and spiritual deception has really no uh, validity to it. Wow. You know, I'm going to go into Jude a lot. Flip over just a little bit. Look at Jude 4. Remember... Verse 3, how, how these, these deceptive people will come in with deceptive words. The judgment's not idle. Look at Jude 4. He expounds on this. For certain men have crept in and noticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They deny him. Jesus said, if you don't have me, you don't have the Father also. They deny this redemptive truth. They've crept in. Where did they come from? Paul was warning, speaking of the church at Ephesus, the same thing in Acts 20. Watch out. Because you're going to be saying the same thing. Where did these people come from? They came from your own midst. They came from supposedly Christian origins, supposedly Christian churches. But oh no, they can't come with me. They came from Princeton Seminary. No, no, not knowing that Princeton Seminary has been apostate for years. 
Most of these people that stand behind the pulpits that have gone to seminary, or a lot of them, not all of them, are the product of the seminary that they spent years being fed under. Where do these people come from? Oh, no, they can't be them. Yes, it can be them. Dr. Barnhouse says this way, if you're looking for the devil, look behind the pulpit. That's where the deceiver of righteousness will be, and amongst other places. By covetousness, they're going to exploit you. Look at verse 4. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, These are strong words. You know, and I think that, that what's interesting about the about both Paul, the Apostle Paul, Peter, John, and, and Jude, is that they end their wonderful, uh, especially Peter and Paul, they end their wonderful epistles of so much richness with a warning. And it's all about judgment. As we talk about these things, especially in chapter 2 of, of 2 Peter, so uh, linked, if you will, in contentual understanding with Jude. Judgment, judgment, judgment is going to fall on these false teachers. Look at Jude 6. Explains it again. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Judgment. People don't like to be to talk about judgment or to hear about judgment. But the Bible's full of judgment. The Bible is full of the fact that God is God, He's holy and pure, He created everything good, He created humanity to have fellowship with Him in love. And yet, because of sin and men going their own way, God must judge sin. He must. If there's any part, uh, if there's any ideology or thinking apart from that fact, God is maligned. He is not represented truthfully. God must judge sin. And he judged yours and mine on the cross when he struck his son instead of you and I in judgment. I rightfully deserve judgment. I rightfully deserve it. I have gone my own way. But God caused all my iniquity to fall on the Lord Jesus Christ and your iniquity too. That's the wonderful thing about the good news. Satan hates the good news. And anybody who stands up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have an enemy that is going to try to stop you, going to try to distort you, going to try to, to uh, discourage you, depress you, Rob you of your joy? Twist up the scripture? Yeah, as God really said? Is that true of me? We were speaking some time ago, years ago, uh, we were doing a, uh, uh, a, a Bible study, and we were teaching on the book of Romans. Well, I only made it, this one, in, in the book of Romans, till the third chapter, and I was thrown out. You know why we were thrown out? People complain, that can't be me. That can't be me. 
read the first chapter of Romans, that all the world is accountable to God, all the world becomes guilty towards God, not only accountable, yeah, I'm accountable to you, but I'm not going to be guilty to you. But the language says we all become guilty before God. The, the depravity of sinful nature, the depravity of humanity, they never let me get to Romans 3.22. But now, those are the, some of the greatest words in the Bible. But now, the righteousness of God has been revealed through the prophets. That Jesus Christ is the answer. But you can't tell me that can't be me. Yes, it's you. I, I would amount that that if we if we read the first three uh, the two or three different individuals that really made a fuss that this guy's this you can't take it anymore. And by the way, they went on to replace uh, the book of solid book of Romans and the teaching of sin with the happy book of Philippians because he wanted to teach the joy of Christ. Well, let me tell you. Um, Jesus was fond of telling stories of how men were broken and yet they're alive. These teachers are going to, these false teachers are going to dampen that. And the very thing that gives grace or gives Jesus Christ coming into the world, dying for the sins of the world, this occasion, they are explaining the way. Surely God will not judge. Look at verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. <laughs> the flood. Again, maligned, twisted, laughed at, well, then, you know, there may have been a flood, but it was a local flood. Or there may have been a flood, but really everything died. Has God really said everything died? Well, we have fossils that prove that the flood wasn't, uh, you know, worldwide. Listen to that debate we have with Ken Ham and uh, Bill Nye. They're going to deny it. It was judgment. God judged the world because it says that in in Genesis 6, right before the flood, that he saw that every imagination of man was continually evil. God must judge it completely. He's not just going to judge a part of it and let the other go rampant. Well, it's a great way that you're in the western part of the world because the eastern part of the world, I really judge. Is God that way? No. God has no respect for persons. God judges sin. And turning the cities, verse 6 of Sodom and Gomorrah went through this all into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. An example. Men laugh at that. Look what's happening today with the homosexuality, the LGBT, all this stuff like that. The example was that not only this was going on, but the sexual immorality, the anarchy, the, the leaving God out. The men by themselves running amok. That's all sin can do is run amok without God. And God must judge it. Using his great examples. I even knew about the flood before I was a Christian. I had heard about that. I had heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody hears about Sodom and Gomorrah. If they know what sodomy is and so forth. I heard of these things as a kid. But he said there's examples. God judged these places. The flood was a worldwide flood. God judged, look at look in Joshua chapter 10, man. Remember when, when God said the hailstones down? 
on certain individuals. God has pointed judgment. God has world catastrophe. But nonetheless, God sends judgment. And we're all heading up to chapter 3 when, when the apostle here is talking about God is going to judge the world. By the same word we're talking about here. And false prophets will enter and say, they'll, they'll denounce judgment. There's no judgment. God's not going to judge us. We must understand judgment. Because if we don't understand judgment, folks, listen to this. If we don't understand God and the fact that he must judge sin, we don't understand the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross of Christ shows two things to the world blatantly. One, the love of God, and one, the hatred he has of sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, the remedy for their sinful condition, will not perish. So God loved the world so much he sent his son. Love unfathomable. But yet, he hates sin so much that those that don't believe in it love will perish in sin because sin was judged at the cross. And false teachers will explain that away somehow. It is not our timing here, because my time is getting short, to explain what all ways that they do explain it away. Flip on some type of, of Christian channels or watch TBN or something. I'm not denouncing all TBN, don't get me wrong, but I have had many, many people uh, say, I'm not going to watch that anymore. I'm, not, I'm saying we need to have discernment. We have the flood. We have Sodom and Gomorrah. We see in verse 7, a delivered righteous lot who is opposed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day and seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That word temptation. That word temptation means that it is set on somebody's ruin. It is set on somebody's captive you know, uh, allurement, temptation is always there to capture. You know, the Bible says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Jude, at the end of his epistle, in Jude 24, says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Before we leave this, this uh, subject of judgment, I want to say this. One uh, passage from Psalm 11, Psalm 11 and a passage from Isaiah 66. Psalm 11, 6 says this, Upon the wicked he will rain coals, Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. What is the lake of fire described as? Lake burning with brimstone. It's a fiery judgment. God has pronounced that men apart from Christ are wicked. Men do not want to look at themselves as wicked. They do not. That's why we were cast aside out of teaching the book of Romans because we were too harsh. That's why men today will not accept the fact that they're wicked. Me? I'm wicked? 
My grandmother, who was, I spent majority of my childhood, I loved her immensely. If she, she died when I was young, if she didn't have Christ, she's, she, she's labeled as wicked. And if she did have Christ, she was a wicked person saved by grace. People don't want to look at that, but they must look at that. People would rather go, tell me how beautiful I am. You know? Tell me how beautiful I look. I mean, I mean, you know, uh, wow, I just got my hair done. How, tell me how beautiful I look. You know, I'm a great guy. I want to know how much of a great guy I am. Well, you know, if, if you were to be judged by a human court, well, maybe. But you're to be judged by the divine court. God himself is the judge. He determines what is right and what is wrong, what is godly and what is ungodly, what is wicked and what is not. And the only one not wicked in his sight that walked this earth is the Lord Jesus Christ for you and for I. So the cross of Christ, the love of God is shown uh, in the apex of history, so has his hatred on sin. God hates sin. And he judged it in Christ. And now these wicked, filthy dreamers, these false prophets and false teachers, look at the example of history, how God judged the world. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. But he reserved the unjust for the day of judgment. Look at verse 10, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. The Bible says in, in Psalm 119, uh, and elsewhere to keep us from presumptuous sins, Proverbs 30 and elsewhere. They're self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. They're not afraid to speak evil of what they don't know and of what is not in the realm of the, the heavenly realms. They speak evil of. They're self-willed. They're not afraid of God. They're not afraid of judgment. They're not afraid of anything. They're their own person, they're the captain of their fate, and they want to teach you that. That's what all humanism is all about. Package it as Satanism, package it as health help, package it what you will. It's all humanism. It is all teaching man that man can do apart from God. That man's going to be fine apart from God. Man is not going to be fine apart from God. You know, if you look at, at chapter 3, verse 1, this is what Peter's doing. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle of both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. You know? You know if you know a lot of these things. Even if we, we, we you know, think about these things or what have you or have dealt with these things personally. Paul says, and so does Peter, that he's going to stir up. Make, make these things known. They're leaving. They want to impress it because when they're gone, they want the people that they're talking to be able to stand up and to know right from wrong. Look at verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a violent accusation against them before the Lord. In other words, they don't take judgment into their own hands. Judgment is reserved for God. Wrath is reserved for him and him alone. This is what Isaiah says. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpse of men who have transgressed against me. 
says the Lord. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be abhorred unto all flesh. Like we said last week, that is exactly the terminology Jesus used in Mark chapter 9. Several times, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We better give heed to the one that says, I am he. And if you don't believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. That is strong language. Ah, you Christians are narrow-minded. Yes, I am narrow-minded. I'm very narrow-minded. Because Jesus is. There's two roads. Yeah, there's a broad road. Hey, I'm, I'm an intellectual. Hey, you know. Live and let live, you know. And if there's a broad road, Jesus says, there I am. You choose. Are you going to go on the road where he's at and stand on his word and believe every word of it? Or are you going to stand on the broad road and have the applause of men and be a great guy? And, and you know, and I can live with your theology because it lets me breathe. It lets me be me and, and, and curiously uh, satisfy the burning conscience I have uh, that all men have. You know? what, what is it? What's the choice that we're going to make? I think I'll, I'll end here. I, you know, the rest of this chapter, before we get into chapter 3, is, you know, basically the depravity of false teachers. They're, they're depraved. They're cursed children. They've forsaken the right way. They've gone in the way of Balaam. They don't know the way of righteousness. Uh, you know, they're full of iniquity. Uh, describing in verse 18 and down, they're empty. They're, they're, you know, they're full of error. They're full of, of hypocrisy. They're full of sin. They promise the way of liberty, but really what they're doing is they're capturing you. They're slaves of corruption. And they're describing these perfectly and understanding what the Bible says about these people. And then in chapter 3, we're going to get to the fact that he is going to say, Hey, you know what? Despite all of this, now that you know that, I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. They're going to come out and they're going to be mockers. They're going to run out to their own will. They're going to say, where is he coming? Is he coming? What? Who? I don't even know this stuff, what you're talking about. Everything's gone on the same. I remember 50 years ago, the sun rose in the the east and set in the west. You see this birthmark? I had it when I can remember five years old. I'm 65. It's still there. In other words, things are going on. What, What is this that you're talking about? You know, there's a, there's a great pronouncement in the Word of God in several different ways how God equates eternity with time. Okay, we see it in Psalm 90. We see it in Psalm, or we see it here where Paul says a thousand years is like one day to the Lord. You know, God is not like man. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. In fact, there's highest from the heaven above the earth. Time is something that man is accustomed to. But when you when you are born again, you start you're in the spiritual realm. You start you start seeing things from God's perspective, and you start looking at the Bible as God's word of God, God's word. You look at the lens of this human history through God's perspective, and things start coming into line. These false teachers don't have that. So with covetous words and everything, they're going to malign you. They're going to lie to you. close with this. I know that uh, several of you know this, and I've, I've said it before, but years and years ago, um, Josh McDowell used to go on the campuses of, of this land, and he made a statement that I've, I, I learned early on. I've used it many, many times myself. 
Jesus said that in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, includes you, comes to the Father but by him. Either he is a self-deluded maniac, an egotistical man, or he is who he claims to be. And all of us at one point or another in our life must grapple with that. So we might as well grapple with that now and take the side of the truth. So when these false teachers and false philosophies and, and the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, which is prevailing in the land now, it's prevailing in the land of the first century, it's, it's gaining speed as we speak. And it simply says they deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They deny that there's only one way to God. They deny that he came into this world by a virgin. They deny the fact that he and he alone answers sin's tyranny. They deny the fact that without him, we are all due to judgment. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. Mike, you want to pray, please? Father, please give us greater insight and uh, appreciation for your majesty, for your justice, Lord, that our inner man would be built up, that we wouldn't fall away from our first love, Lord, that, that we would grow in, in mm -hmm. love as we eagerly await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ when he'll be marveled at among us. So, mm. 